Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 19. And uh, as I told you earlier, today we're going to uh, uh, close out this great chapter. And boy, it's been a great chapter too. There's been so much in this as, you know, all of the chapters we've come through so far. And uh, we have saw some really great principles uh, coming through this chapter. Last week, uh, if you remember, I, I told you about one of the greatest studies that I ever undertook that helped me uh, probably more than anything else as far as the ministry is concerned. And that was a study of human nature. You know, human nature is an incredible study in the Bible. You know, what man in his old nature will try to do with what God gives him. We also looked the week before uh, the great verse that talked about there's many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And the old nature, the old man, the human side of us, the human nature, as the world likes to call it, uh, will always be and stand against the things of God. And uh, that's our old nature, our flesh. And that's what human nature is. It will always be against anything that God tries to do. When the Bible talks about the great battle between the new nature and the old nature, this is what we're talking about. If you've got your Bibles for a moment uh, before we go to Proverbs, come over to Romans chapter 7. I want to show you uh, that this great concept at work here and probably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. You know, we think many times that because we struggle with things that, uh, that people in the Bible that God used greatly and mightily never struggled with the same things, and that's simply not true. Paul was probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, and yet he struggled with many of the things that uh, you and I struggle with, and especially in his old nature and his human nature that he had to battle with. And he says in Romans chapter 7, and by the way, Romans chapter 7, if you don't have it marked in your Bible, Romans chapter 7 is the great definitive chapter on the old nature versus the new nature. Uh, it's where you always want to go first, and then you can move out from there. Uh, but this is the definitive passage on it. And he says this in verse 14. I'll not read the whole chapter. He says, no, uh, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Boy, how many times have we all found ourselves in that situation? And that shows to show you that Paul is no different than you and I are in anything that he does. He says, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more, and here's the key, now, more, now then it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is my flesh, there's your old nature, there's human nature, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So you begin to see that Paul struggles with the same thing that you and I do. And I want you to understand going into this chapter that what I'm going to preach on today, what I'm going to talk about, uh, everybody struggles with. Paul struggled with it. And he asked down here, O wretched man that I am, who 
uh, shall deliver me from the body of this death. And then he answers that question in verse 25 and when he says this, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, uh, the law of sin. And he says, who's going to deliver you from it? The Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And that's what we want to focus on today. Now, our human, our human nature will be a direct result of our fallen image that we got from Adam. We know that the Bible says that when Adam sinned, sin passed upon all men, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. And, uh, you know, when it comes to your flesh, when it comes to your human nature, and it comes to your old nature, I want you to understand something. You can't play with it. You can't bargain with it. You can't pacify it. You can't cut a deal with it. You can't give it an inch in your life. I told the kids uh, in uh, Bible uh, uh, people ministry yesterday, you know, that the only thing that you can do with your flesh is what Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says is crucify it. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Daily dying by crucifying yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I, I told him also yesterday, you know what? That's an interesting thing because everybody here can shoot yourself. Everybody here can stab yourself. Everybody here can go out and take an overdose of pills and kill yourself that way or lock yourself into your garage and put a hose on your exhaust pipe and run it into your garage and kill yourself that way. But nobody ever in history was ever able to crucify themselves. You can't do that to yourself. And when it comes to you being crucified with Christ, you can't do it. God has to do it for you. And the only way he does it is through the Word of God and through the principles of the Word of God. Now, to lay along with that, let's look at our next set of verses. And we want to kind of match these together. And Proverbs chapter 19, let's pick it up now in verse 24 through the end of the chapter. A slothful man hides his hand in his bosom and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Smite a scorner, and the simple will beware. And reprove one that hath understanding, and he will understand knowledge. He that wastes his father, and chasten away his mother, is a son that causes shame, and bringeth reproach. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causes to err from the words of knowledge. And in godly witness scorneth judgment, and the mouth of the wicked devoureth iniquity. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. Chris Schmidt, I see you're back there someplace. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering? Or on the offering. Yeah, we're going to take up another offering here just to say, oh, go ahead, on the service. Amen. A number of years ago, probably close to 25 years ago, I began a program in my own life of detailing out every verse, every, every book of the Bible. I realized that sometime in my life I had to get that done. 
It took me probably six or seven years to do it. And uh, I went through every book of the Bible. I laid every book of the Bible out, uh, doctrinally, historically, inspirationally. I broke down the chapters. I got the key verses in it, marked all the key words in them. And it was, it was, quite, a, it was quite an endeavor. But I did that for myself. And that, like I said, that was sometime like 25, maybe 30 years ago. And I remember back then that I detailed out the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs was a book that I couldn't wait to get to. But I, I stayed with my structure and I started in Genesis and worked through. But when I got to the book of Proverbs, I, I just was really excited about it. And I remember going through the book of Proverbs and many of the things that I have in Proverbs now that are in my Bible, uh, I got so many years ago as I broke it down and realized the breakdown of the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs, as every book in the Bible, has its own breakdown in it. That, that's how you got to study it. And, uh, you know, so it had been a while that we did that. When we started coming through Proverbs in our church here, which was uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I was amazed at the fact that, I, you know, like everything else, when I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to do the book of Proverbs, the next thought that comes in, that'll be a piece of cake because I already got everything done with that. And so I could just about go to any book in the Bible in 30 seconds or less and, and, and break it down and give it because I got it all in there. So I thought to myself, this will be easy. And uh, I'll just get in there and I'll take what I've got. I've already got the outline down and I began to do it. I want to tell you something. When I started the book of Proverbs after doing it 25 years ago, with all that time in between what God had given me and God had shown me, it was like I had never looked at the book of Proverbs before. There was so much in there that I saw that I missed the first time. There was so much in there that I saw that just, I don't know how it escaped me the first time. There was principles that just came alive that I didn't have. I mean, I had, I had, I, I've now got so many notes in it that I hardly can separate where they're all at. It was an incredible endeavor once we started this study. And I thought to myself, man, if that isn't the proof positive that, that the, the Word of God is eternal and the Word of God knows no boundaries, and as the Bible says, it's in the unsearchable riches, it's the fact that because it is God's mind, especially the book of Proverbs, because it is God's mind, and I believe that every book in the Bible, everything in the Bible will come back to Proverbs. It began to show me how important it was to just stay with this book and to learn this book. Uh, you know, and it's, uh, uh, it's it, what happens when you go through the Bible. And I know, you know, when, when you work for a, an FBI or a police department or whatever, and uh, we all like those, uh, those things on, on TV that, you know, the criminal minds is a great one, uh, the uh, uh, ICS or CIS or SEC or whatever that is, you know, all those things. We love those. And I'll tell you why we love them. We love them because here's a situation where that a guy gets murdered, a person gets murdered, something happens, and they have to call in a special team of investigators. And the thing that makes them better than the other police officers that are just the run-of-the-mill police officers, these guys have been trained in profiles of people, and when they go into a crime scene, they know exactly what to look for. Where a police officer may go in, and uh, if he's not careful, he'll contaminate the crime scene. He won't, he'll look over here, and he'll just see a wastebasket with stuff in it. And he doesn't think anything about it. He'll see a, a magazine flipped open to a certain place. He thought that this was reading the magazine. But somebody who knows what to look for, someone who is an investigator in the criminal world, 
will see the crime scene completely different than the average person that just goes in and says, oh, yeah, that, that. Everything means something to him. What may be in the trash can may be a key that somebody threw something away that now is going to give them a lead of where they need to go. They may look at the magazine that that person was reading, and they may find out that, that they were, their thoughts before uh, whatever happened. They may, they may realize that, uh, you know, there's fibers of DNA uh, here or there and they, where the average person wouldn't even think to look at it. My point is simply this. What happened to me from the first time I studied Proverbs to 20-some years later when I studied again, I learned to look for some things. I learned to look at the book of Proverbs like a guy looks at a crime scene. I began to realize that there was things that I should look for that I missed 25 years ago. There was things there that I didn't think it meant anything back then, but now I do. And my goal to help you with the Bible, everything we do, is to get you that investigating mind. I would buy, if one of the ways you can start is, you all go to the grocery store, buy the National Enquirer. Because that's for inquiring minds. You don't want to read it, you just want to remember. You always want to have an inquiring mind. Put it up on your refrigerator. And it's something that you've got to learn to begin to know what to look for in the Bible. Every book of the Bible. Look at the Bible like it's a crime scene. It is in many cases. Many people killed in the Bible. Many things done in the Bible. And you have to investigate each book of the Bible. And the way you do that is to learn in time what to look for. One of the things that I do here and, and try to do and everything that I do is to give you that insight that you, can, you, you know what the key words are. You know what to look for here. You know what to look for there. And that is so crucial in understanding how the Bible, but in our study here, particularly the book of Proverbs, uh, is so important. What, you look at what's out of place. You look at how this fits. You look at, well, that's an odd thing. One of the great uh, passages that I use at funerals all the time is, is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's, it's completely out of place with the way people think today. And you take that couple of verses and you lay that thing out, and you get everybody's attention because they're thinking, boy, that is completely different to the way that I think in, in, in my life. And that's what you got to do with the Bible. All right, let's begin by looking at verse 24. Now, here's a good one. Here's something that, that most people teach it one way, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I see it just a little bit differently based on the wording structure of it and where most guys would just read through it, take it at face value, uh, I look at every word. And when I see something that uh, doesn't maybe exactly line up with the way it's, it's taught most of the time, uh, I may understand the general concept is true, but I also know there's going to be something else there. He says this, A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom, and he will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Now, the verse that I've always heard and I've always seen it associated with it, and it's true. If you don't work, you don't eat. And, you know, uh, you, know it, it, you work with your hands. And, uh, you know, idle hands is the, the devil's workshop. I'm sure your mother told you that. It's always associated with laziness, slothfulness, because in life, you know, uh, you do things with your hands. So hiding your hands will always be a reference and many times to somebody not working, being lazy. But when I saw that verse years ago, when I saw that verse, I saw that it wasn't talking about hands. It wasn't talking about hands in a plural way. It was talking about hand in a singular way. And I always thought and always saw that verse as uh, that really talks about uh, people who 
only do things halfway in their life. One-handed. Only get one hand involved. You know, in most things in life, to do a good job, we have to use both hands and not just one. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you, know you, you drive well and you want to drive safe, you keep both hands on the wheel. When my oldest granddaughter, Maddie, begins to take her first date after her mom and dad talk to whoever takes her out, I'm going to pull him aside and I'm going to say, keep both hands on the wheel. That's good advice. I got your back, Maddie. What, what, are, you, what are you talking to her for? Talk to me. What did you say? We got a date set up here that I don't know about? No. You just stay with your grandpa the rest of your life. Because when your mom and dad put me down in the basement, you can come down and bring me food. <laughs> and I always looked at the verse as, as I, I understand. And I wouldn't argue with somebody who used that as laziness because it is. But I'm more exact when it comes to things. And I, I look at things and, and take every word at face value. And I know that in most things in life we have to do uh, with both hands. You know, the virtuous woman in Proverbs chapter 31, in 31, 13, it says, She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. Both of them, see? Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 16 says, A length of days is in thy right hand, and thy left hand uh, is riches and honor. And I looked at that many, many years ago, and it says, in your left hand uh, is, uh, uh, is, is, uh, right hand is uh, uh, one thing, and, the, and then the left hand is the other. And I always looked at that, that's how you hold your Bible. And the Bible, open up, holding both hands, reading your Bible, is the Old Testament and the New Testament that contains those things. And I, I always looked at that verse as, as something a little different. Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The study that show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I'm telling you, if you're going to ever learn the Bible, you're going to have to use both hands. You're not going to be able to do it one-handed. And I would, if I don't usually title my sermons, but if I was going to title my sermon, I would, I would, I would call it a one-handed Christianity today. Where people have one hand that they'll do something for God, the other hand they keep for themselves. And that's just exactly where it is. In, in Exodus chapter 16, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, it shows how the manna in the Old Testament that was the sac, uh, spiritual uh, food that God gave the nation of Israel, the supernatural food that he brought down to them in the wilderness of sin. I've always understood that as a picture of the fact that you and I in this world, we live in the wilderness of sin. When Israel left Egypt and they began that journey that took them for 40 years, they didn't find anything to eat in the wilderness of sin. There was no water that was worth drinking. There was no food that was worth eating. And so what God had to do to sustain them is to bring them supernatural food and supernatural water. He brought the manna down from heaven and he brought the water out of the rock. And in this life, for you and for me, in the world that we live in, this wilderness of sin that we're making our pilgrimage through, there's nothing here that's going to satisfy you. The water's bad, the food's bad, everything out there will be against you. Your human nature may like it, but your new nature will never care for it. And I remember reading back there how that while they slept at night, God brought down the manna, and it rained down like snow. And when they woke up in the morning, it was laid all around the camp. And I often looked at that as what a beautiful picture that is when God gave us the Word of God. Now, God gave them the Word of God freely. It came down while they slept. 
But when they woke up in the morning and they pushed back the tent flap of their tent, they saw that manna, type of the word of God, all over the ground like snow. Bible calls it hoarfrost. That's snow in the Bible. And, I, and, I, and, and, I, and they, when they opened up that tent door and they saw that around there, it brought upon them a decision that they had to decide what they were going to do. They either had to take the word of God that God had provided them and become the nourishment, or they simply just walked out of that tent and trampled the word of God under their feet. And you have the same decision this morning every day of your life. God has given you the manna from heaven. He brought it to you. It's God's supernatural sustaining food and water for everything that we need. But the decision you have to decide every day of your life, are you going to do something with it? Or are you just going to trample it under your feet? And many of God's people trample it under their feet. My point is this. When they gathered that, the Bible said some gathered more and some gathered less. That's a great concept. You know, in this church, really in any church, I guess, but in this church, you can have as much of the Bible as you want. There's no limit on it. We don't allow you to get to a certain place and then send you home. You can have as much of the Bible as you want. You can have as much as me as you can stand, I was going to say want. You can stand. You can, you can have whatever you need here because the Bible says back there, some gathered more and some gathered less. They had to gather it. But when they gathered it, I guarantee you, they were hungry. They were starving to death. They didn't have any food at all. And I guarantee you, if you were a starving person and somebody put food in your life, you wouldn't pick it up with your little pinky up like they do down at the Radisson Mule Box. You'd be scooping it up with both hands. And they went out there with their dishes and their bowls and their baskets. They were scooping up the Word of God with both hands and getting as much of it as they can. And when it comes to the book that God gave you, you can't learn it one-handedly. I, I, I thought about this as I, was, as I was putting this sermon together. People, when it comes to the Bible, will do it one-handedly, and they'll keep the other hand for themselves. You know, you see this in the book of Judges, it makes, or, or in the book of uh, Kings and Chronicles with the kings of Israel. It makes perfect sense now. The Bible, how many, how many times I've been asked where the Bible talks about a king, and he says, he did right in all the day of his life, but his heart was not perfect with the Lord. And people will scratch their head and say, how can a guy do what's right, but his heart not be perfect? And that's a, ver- that's a verse that confuses people. Never really confused me. You know how, why you can? Because you only do it one-handedly. You're not all in. Oh, you love God, but you're not willing to go all the distance with God. Somebody, I told the kids yesterday, somebody called me a couple of weeks ago and he says, you know, I want to I wanna get into ministry and I, you know, I got a wife and I got a kids and I got this. He says, how, how much should I, how much should I get in? How deep should I get into the ministry? How much should I do? And my answer to him was, don't do anything more or less than Jesus did. He had responsibility. He had family. He had 12 people he had to take care of. And you realize that you have to balance your life out, but coming to Christianity with one hand in and one hand out will never be the way to do it. I promise you, we walked out of church today and some billionaire, you know, felt sorry for Kansas City and he's flying around up here in an airplane and he's got all of his associates and they got big barrels of $100 bills, $60 million worth of $100 bills. And we're out walking out of church and we look up and just about that time he dumps all those $100 bills out over Kansas City. 
And those $100 bills come floating down, you know, and you're looking up and you're saying what it is. And one of them hits the ground and you see the $100 bill. Another one hits the ground and you see the $100 bill. Let me tell you something. You wouldn't be picking them up with one hand. <laughs> You'd be scooping them suckers up with both hands, with your mouth, and with your toes. Don't kid me. But God will drop the manna from heaven that's worth millions of dollars per verse, put it right in your lap and give you the riches, the true riches of Christ Jesus, and you'll pick it up with one hand if you pick it up at all. See, human nature, man. God's people, when it comes to God and the Word of God, it's one of the most fantastic studies you'll ever find in your life. The Bible's not a hard book to learn. It really isn't. I hear it all the time. I hear pastors tell you all the time, oh, it's going to take you all your life to study it. Yeah, listening to you, it probably will. <laughs> but the Bible's not a hard book to learn. It really isn't. It really isn't. Do you realize what our hang-up is when it comes to the Bible? It's real simple. You ain't going to like this, but it's okay. It's early in the day. You know what our hang-up is? Ours, yours and mine. We got to overcome this. This is part of our old nature. You know what it comes to the Bible and, and how simple the Bible is to learn it? Well, I'm going to tell you something. You get right with God or saved, whatever the case may be, and jump in. If you don't have a working knowledge of the Word of God in five or six years, there's something wrong with either the guy that's teaching you or what you're doing with what he's giving you. But we, you know what our hang-up is? It's so easy. It's so simple. Two basic things. That's all it is. Two basic things. Why you and I won't get the Word of God from it. Two simple things. One, our hard-headed approach to doing it our way. We don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it our way. You know what got each of us in the trouble we've got in in life? Doing things our way. You think at some point in life we'd learn that? And our old new nature knows that, but our old nature likes those things. So the first thing that we all struggle with and the first problem that keeps us is we're, we're all hard-headed when it comes to the approach of getting the Word of God. We want it our way. And uh, we always want it on our terms. Well, God, I'm going to study the Bible, but I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to do everything else in my life, and I'm going to give you what's left over. You be, on tr you be there when I'm ready and give me what I need. Second thing is our half-hearted attempt to learn it. We do it one-handed. We don't get into it all the way. Well, we, don't, we, don't, we, we just take a little bit of it and keep everything else for ourselves, and we just approach it in life from a one-handed. I've always looked at that verse. I've told you the story, and I won't go into it in great detail because I've told it so many times. I've got to tell you, it's my favorite story to tell, but I won't do it. I'll spare you. I told you about the kid that lived in, uh, over there in the Middle East someplace, and uh, in his village was the wisest man that ever lived. And uh, he was a great guru, you know, and everybody in the place went to see him and he got all the answers. And this kid watched this all of his life. And he, he wanted so much to be like that, that, uh, that great wise guru that was in, uh, in his village. So when he got to be about 18 or 19, he had decided that he was going to dedicate his life to truth, knowledge, and finding out all the secrets of the world. So he goes to see this old guy. And they have a conversation and the old man says, okay, you want to... You want to be a, a guru? Uh, you know, you want to learn all these things? He says, I'll, I'll help you get there. He says, show back up about 3 o'clock this afternoon and we'll start the process. Well, the kid's elated. He thinks now that he's going to go in there, just like a lot of you do. You're going to show up Bible study, walk out of here, and, and you're going to know all the Bible. That ain't going to happen that way. 
So he shows up at 3 o'clock, and the old man, he's standing out in the front yard, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a river or a stream there right goes by the guy's house. So the young man says, here I am. And so the old man takes him down to that water's edge, and the old man walks in and motions for him to come out. The old man gets about up to here and bring the kids out here, and the kid's looking around, and he says, oh, this is some kind of ceremonial service. Man, I'm really excited about this. About that time, the old man took his hand, put it on the guy's head, and pushed him under the water and just held him there. Now, the guy, was, the guy was speaking to himself and had his mouth open, so he didn't get a big breath of air before he went under. And he's choking to death. He's drowning. And the old man just holds him down there. The old man just holds him down there and won't let him up. And after about, you know, 20, 30 seconds, when he thinks the kid just up ready to have the body be present with the Lord, he lets him come up. And the kid is choking and puking and everything else. The old man drags him over to the land shore and lays him down there. And the kid is spitting up water, coughing up, and he's mad. He gets, regains his control. He gets up and he just lits into this old guy. And he says, what kind of training is this? He said, I thought you were going to give me the secret to the universe. I was sincere. It's obviously you think this is a joke. Why you would do that to me? And the old man just standing there, just looking at him. When the kid got done, the old man looked at him. He said this, you know what, son? You want truth? You want knowledge? You want to learn the word of God? You want the secrets that God has for you? I'll tell you the key. When you want that book, just like you wanted air when you thought you were going to drown, that's when you'll get it. You'll never learn the Bible. You'll never get into God the way he wants you to. You'll never be what God wants you to be and get out of here what God has to you. Want this thing so bad, it's like the very air you believe. And until that point, it's one-handed. It's just one-handed. Look at verse 25. I mean, back in the 1800s, they had a gold rush out in California. Those guys, I mean, you should see thousands and thousands of people went out to find gold. I never saw a picture of one of them panning for gold with one hand. You want the book, take both hands. Look at verse 25. Smite a scorner, and the simple will beware. And reprove one that hath understanding, and he will understand knowledge. Now, let me explain here. The simple here uh, will be a child of God who just stays with the book and keeps things simple in his life. He's not a simpleton. In the Bible, there's two kinds of simple people. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 7 talks about a, a, a man, a, a, a simple one of youth who's void of understanding. We're not talking about that here. Here it's a guy who just simply believes and follows what God says. So there's two kinds of simple people in the Bible. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, a, a simple person who just follows the Word of God can be taught by watching God uh, not only deal with him, but what, others, what God deals with others around him. And I think that's one of the real things that we cannot do in most of our lives today. We don't see and understand uh, what God is doing in somebody else's life. And we don't apply that. And yet 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says that he talks about that the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament, they were for our examples, examples, and for our admonition. He says the things that they went through and the things that they did, he says, I listed them there for you that you might see them so you don't fall into the same trap as they do that you can learn by others' mistakes. Now, I always teach you that you need to learn from your mistakes. But I want to tell you something else. You need to learn from others' mistakes too. Because verse 12 says, take heed lest you fall, of over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I've seen parents lose their kids. I've seen marriages fall apart. I've seen God's people get with the wrong crowd. 
and watch that wrong crowd just destroy their relationship with God, even their own church, sometimes even their own pastor. I, I've, seen, I've seen men and women that were saved make one bad choice with terrible consequences and lose the ability to ever do anything for God the rest of their lives. You know, and I know what the answer is. I know everybody says, well, you know, God forgives. And does that. And God is a God of the second chance. Sure he is. It's not the fact that God won't give you a second chance. It's the fact that you put yourself so down the hole you can't reach the second chance. Because sin never leaves it any better than it finds you. In over 20, 30 years of, of what, multiple kids, multiple expenses, multiple problems, your own issues, the things that you have to deal with, all the connecting pieces that make it just unbearable and make it to a place where you want to learn the Bible, you want to get into the Word of God, you want to do this, you want to do that. You don't have any time now. You know why? Your problems sucked it all out of you. you got nothing left to give. 24-7 of your life is trying to put the Band-Aids on the issues you've caused in your life. I get it. I've seen that. I watched some people die too young. I watched some of them grow old and get bitter. I watched some of them get away from God and leave uh, Him and go right back to the world. And I wanted you to know, I don't ever judge people with what they do. I really don't. My life is when I see somebody do something terribly wrong, and uh, I, I never judge them for it. I, I never necessarily think they're a bad people. I understand that good people do stupid things sometimes. I get it. And I ever never, in my own heart, my own mind, I never pass judgment on them. You know why? Because I never get so far the fact that I know if it wasn't for the grace of God and the book that God gave me, I'd be in the same mess. Amen. But I got to be honest with you. My Bible says over there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that he that spiritual judges all things. Now, I don't judge people, but I will judge the things that they get involved in to my own life and say, I don't want to be part of that. I don't need that. I don't need that in my life. You know, I, I never would judge the person. So I'll watch them make some terrible mistakes. And obviously I try to help them. I really do. We all do. And I learn from it just so I don't have to go through the same thing. I've seen guys, people go through situations in their life that have completely taken them out of the fellowship with God. They lost the joy of their life all because they got, all because of they allowed something to come into their life. And I, I watch those things and I, I, I look at those things and I never say a word, but I just watch the overall surroundings of how it all comes down and I walk away with it to my own self. Not making a judgment on that person. I love that person. I'd do anything to help them. But when it comes to me, I saw what got them where they're at even if they don't want to see it. And I may not be able to make them see it, but I'm going to see it because I don't want it to happen to me. So you know what I'll do? I'll stay away from the places that they go. Because there's some places that you go are going to mess you up. And I'll tell you something else. I'll stay away from the people that they hang out with. Because there are some people out there that will hurt you, save people. If I've learned anything in life, I've learned that the devil will always meet you where you're not supposed to be. And if I learned anything else in life, the devil will always form the threesome when the person you're with is not who you should be with. I guarantee you. The greatest example of this, if you ever want to study it in the Bible, is found in the book of Judges uh, with Samson. You know, Samson is a picture of so many of God's people today. Samson, bless his heart, and I love him. And you know what? Samson's found in God's Hall of Fame. You know why that? And this is a guy that was messed up all of his life. And Samson is a picture of a Christian in a 
practical, inspirational application. <clears throat> He's a picture of a child of God who winds up in heaven, but in his physical life, because of his old nature and because of his flesh, he never one time in his life and all the account of his life in the book of Judges ever got the victory in anything. You know, there's a lot of God's people that way today. There's a lot of God's people that you just can't get the victory in anything in your Christian life. And you scratch your head and wonder why. I mean, he's a man who could never get the victory in his life. And I've seen people that today, you know, come in and talk to me and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. And, or I've, I've, I've got an attitude about this. I've got an attitude about that. And I don't know why and I don't know why. I just say, go back and look at Samson. Here's a guy who's a picture of a Christian that all his life he never got the victory. And there's two reasons. One, he kept going to the wrong places. And two, he kept hanging out with the wrong people. Back in Judges chapter 14, verse 5. Now, he's a Nazarite. And in the Numbers chapter 6, a Nazarite, that's someone who separated himself from the world to do a special task for the Lord. The Nazarite vow is a really a picture of what, in a spiritual sense, you and I are as Christians. We are to be separated from the world. The Nazarite, by this vow, physical vow, is separating him from the world. I don't know if you know it or not, but there was a couple of things that he couldn't do. The first thing he couldn't do is he couldn't have no part of a vine tree. So why are you drinking on the weekends? That's just a question. Because your buddies are doing it? Because you like it? Because you think it's okay? There's no funeral home that's ever quieter than it is in here right now. As a Nazarite, under the Nazarite vow, he was to be separated from three things. The first one was the vine tree. So how do you justify what you do on the weekends? Or maybe throughout the week. Second thing, he wasn't allowed to touch a dead body. Pick him an unsaved people. What are you doing hanging out with unsaved people? You see where your problems begin to start? The third thing is he wasn't allowed to cut his hair. Now that don't seem like much to you, but the nation of Israel was told to cut their hair a certain way. And where everybody else in the world had their hair one way, the nation of Israel was supposed to cut their hair universally another way. And that showed that they were different from everybody else. Now, in the Bible, it says that a long hair was given to a woman, not to a man. And it says that a man has long hair. It's a shame unto him in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we see that him not cutting his hair is a picture of also what we ought to be as a child of God. We're to bear a shame and a reproach for the Lord Jesus Christ. That Nazarite vow was something. And old Samson could never get it. He could never quit going to the places that he should never go to, and he couldn't stay away from the people that he needed to stay away from. I've had people say, well, I go out with the world because I don't have any Christian friends. Oh, that's a great choice. That's like saying, I drink strychnine because I can't find a bottle of water. Samson. He's bebopping. He's going to see his woman. And so he's walking down the road here and he knows a shortcut. That shortcut is through the vineyard to belong to somebody else. Now keep in mind, he's supposed to stay away from things on a vine tree. 
But he thinks he knows more about it, and that's okay, because he, like you and me, we think we're the exception to the rule, don't we? So he cuts through the vineyard, which he's supposed to stay away from. And there in the vineyard, he meets the lion. He kills the lion, and then a little bit later on, he touches the lion, which is now dead, and he violates the Nazarite law in two places there. He refuses to get a haircut. He refuses to bring the sacrifices that he's supposed to bring. He's supposed to bring a female lamb. He's supposed to bring a, a male lamb. And then he's supposed to bring a, 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 a ram. He won't do it. He's like so many of God's people. I can do whatever I want. Well, just let me say this before I finish the story. The devil will always meet you where you're not supposed to be. So he's not going to do it. So you know what God did? He wouldn't give a female lamb, so God killed his wife. He wouldn't get a male lamb, so God took his father. And he wouldn't get a, he wouldn't get a ram, so God says, you know what, Samson went the Philistines, took him, and Delilah made sure he got his hair cut. And they tied him between two big pillars. The only thing in his life that he ever did that was done for God was his own suicide. When he's down there trained, a child of God, hooked to a grinding wheel, naked, while the world's laughing at him. A child of God. It reminds me of so many of God's people who you chain yourself to this old world and the world laughs at you. A child of God, naked, grinding, day after day. They made sport with him. They laughed at him, made fun of him. A child of God. All started by him going to the wrong place and hanging out with the wrong people. And finally he's down there and he's between those pillars and they got him chained and they're making fun of him and they're doing everything the world does and God finally now speaks to him again. And he says, I wasn't there, but I know what he would say because I know what I would say. Lord, I've really screwed this up. Lord, I've made a mess out of this. Lord, I, I, I should have never went where I shouldn't have went. I should have never done the things that I did. But what am I going to do now? Lord, I, I, didn't, I didn't give the female lamb because, you know, so you took her and I didn't give the male lamb and you took him and now here I am and I know I got to get a ram and how, how am I going to get a ram? And the Lord looks down and says, I'll tell you what, Samson, you be the ram. And the only thing he ever did in his life for God was bring down the house. <laughs> Killed all of the Philistines that were there. But it cost him his life. We tell you something, kids, and you're going to hear it again in a couple of weeks maybe. If God can't get auto and glory out of your life, he will get it out of your death. Amen. And I will preach a good funeral for you. Samson's problem. Just two things. He kept going to the wrong places and he kept hanging out with the wrong people and it destroyed him. Verse 25 says, through reproof will come understanding and knowledge. Samson would never take reproof from anybody. And you know what? Some of you won't either. Samson would never listen to reproof. He would never, he'd get his nose bent in a joint. He'd get upset. He'd leave the church. He'd get mad about this. He'd get mad about that. Samson would never take reproof. You know what the word reproof means? 
Reproof. It means reprove what you're doing if it's right. Second Timothy 3, 16, 17, famous verse. We all know it. All scriptures given by and to God and his problem for doctrine, for reproof. The value of reproof, the value of finding out in your life and my life what is right and then finding out with us what's wrong and then correction, the third thing, changing our lives and then the fourth thing, instruction and in righteous, staying with it. Oh, no, 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 no. Not us Samson's. Uh-uh, boy. We'll be out there this weekend guzzling it down with our buddies. And we'll justify it. Just like Samson. And when somebody preaches a message like this, you'll get your nose better than a joint because you, like Samson, will not take reproof. And you'll scratch your head 10, 20 years from now, wonder what happened. Other than the fact that you're an idiot, not much. There's value in reproof. The Bible says that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished to all good works. There's value in reproof. Reproof will perfect you. Many of God's people, they have no care to be perfected. They've been hanging out with the wrong crowd. Blood life. Drink well, my friend. Verse 26. Now, here's a good one. He that wastes his father and chases away his mother. He's a son that causes shame and bringeth reproach. A couple of weeks ago, I preached out of verse 20, and I said, Hear counsel and receive instruction, that thou mayest be wise in the latter end. Simply the verse is saying, and it's a good verse to preach on, which I'm about to do. Simply don't waste what God will give you from the Bible. You kids here, you young kids, all of you, you older kids, you have some really good parents. We have a very good elementary division here that uh, uh, Barb and Phil head up and all of you work in that and all of you do the best, uh, very great job. But, but at the end of the day, uh, it isn't the elementary group that makes you what you are. It's your mom and dad at home. We just try to support what they do. But most of you kids have very good parents. My advice to you is don't waste the advice and the counsel and the instruction that they want to give you. When you hit 14 or 15 or 16, don't cop an attitude about it. I'll say something else, too. You here at Old Pass Baptist Church, you get a lot of good, solid Bible. Amen. Now, you may not agree with that, but that's okay. You're an idiot, too. Amen. You get a lot of good, solid Bible here. My advice to you is don't waste what God, your Heavenly Father, has provided for you here. It's no accident why you're here. If it is, then you're probably not saved. It's no accident that you're here this morning. So why do you got an attitude about it? If it's in the hand of God that he brought you here, what did he bring you here for? So you can have an attitude? No, he brought you here to get the instructions that you would need, to get everything that you wanted you to have. He brought you here so you wouldn't waste the instructions of your heavenly father. Life, listen, all life as a Christian, or even as a parent, will break down into two simple concepts of truth. When we train your children as parents, when I train you as, as, as a pastor, you train your child to hear and receive good instruction. 
and then you train your child to do something with the instruction that they just heard and received. Don't waste what your father has for you. Our greatest example of this in the Bible, and this is why I'm saying there's so many examples of it, would be Samuel, back there in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Samuel was an incredible, he's a credible opening to the, to the book of 1 Samuel and to what is commonly known as the books of the kings. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. It's a tremendous story. And Samuel was a young man just like so many of you. I don't know how many times that a young man has come to me and wanted to start a church or wanted to go into the ministry, and I'll take him to the definitive chapter on it out of there. And you know what? After I take him through there and do that, half the time, they just follow their own devices, their own heart, and do their own thing. And then they scratch their head and wonder why, wonder why it never goes anywhere. Look, God has a way that he does things. And I go back to what I said, the two issues that we have. The first one is our hard-headedness that we think we know more about it than God does. You better get past that as quickly as you can. The second thing is your half-hearted attempt of doing something for the Lord. Verse 19 says, And Samuel grew, of chapter 3, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did, not let, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan unto Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. You know, that's what needs to happen here in your life. You need to let God establish you. Establish you in the Word of God first. Establish you in your relationship with Him second. And then establish you in the lives of other people that you may give them the instructions that God has given you. God's people never do that today for the most part. We're a unique bunch here. We're a unique bunch here. God has put all his rotten apples in one bag here, so to speak. And we're, you're, a, you're a unique group. You actually love the Bible, most of it, and you do something with it. And even the ones who don't, you're really nice people. But it's a thing where, you know what, the, the job of this church, my job is to establish you. That's my job, because God got something want you to do. And uh, you, know, uh, you, you know, being established in anything uh, always gives you the edge. If you go get a job someplace and you got somebody over here that's going in for the same job, and uh, he has no experience, and you've done the experience for five or six years, you're probably going to get the job. You know why? You're establishing what the guy's looking for. And in this church, what makes any church great is the men and women who are established. And God will do all kinds of things to establish you. He'll want to get you to that point and get you to that place in your life where you simply get established. And then God can do something with you. And my job is to establish you in the Word of God. Your job is to, uh, is to uh, want to be what God wants you to be and then do it. I mean, it's just that simple. Just that simple. Look at verse 27. And along with the other great advice I've given you so far, here's some more. Cease, my son, to hear the instructions that causes to err from the words of knowledge. Wow. Instructions that somebody will give you that will cause you to err from the word of God. Now, you'd think that'd be the world. I'll tell you what, it isn't always the world. Now, I've said this many times in you know, I've told you over and over again, stay away from people, places, and instructions that will pull you away from the Word of God. Affect your attitude. I mean, I say it again. If, you, if, if, if you're here because you felt God has brought you here, then what's with the attitude? 
Find where God wants you to go. Get the right attitude. If you can learn the Bible someplace else better than you can here, why do you got an attitude about it? Go find it. That's what you're supposed to do. But you're going to find out that going someplace else is not going to solve your problem because the problem is the fact that you can't get the Word of God here. The problem is you don't want it. There's the problem. See how I did that? When you want to really make something go home to your heart, you say it and then you take your glasses off and lean forward. I read that in a book one place. Any influence, saved or lost, that will go against what God is trying to do in your life is a bad thing. And I want to tell you something. That advice is not always in bars and in, in the worldly events. Some of it's right here at Old Pass Baptist Church, as it is in any church. Now, you'll never escape it. And we get the idea that when, uh, uh, you see, here's what the devil knows. You need to know this. The devil knows that in any church that's a good Bible-believing church, he's not going to get you to dump your Bible. He's not going to get you to go back to the world. He's not going to do that. He knows that all the tricks of the trade uh, that he does uh, with everybody else won't work for a, a Bible believer. It won't. You're not going to go back to the world. We're not going to drive out to the airport to drop somebody off and see you in a robe as a hairy Christian with your little symbols waiting for money. We're not going to see that. No, no, he's smarter than that. You know what he does? Here's what he does. He plays on your inability to look for the right things in the Word of God, so he'll put some Christian in your life that has an attitude, and that attitude will affect your attitude. That's how he does it. And he goes out the door laughing. What he does, what he always does. Going back to verse 21, a couple of weeks ago, there will be many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that will stand. And those things will, that counsel will, will cause you to cease to hear what I'm saying or anybody else is saying. And uh, they're, they're really listed throughout the Bible. I mean, read Mark chapter 7, verse 7 through 9 sometime. I read Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Look up, you know, 1 Timothy 1 through 4 through 7. Look up 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Uh, and when you go through those passages, you'll find seven things listed in the Bible uh, that, uh, uh, that, you wanna, you, that will cause you to err if you get those instructions from them. You'll find science. You'll find philosophy. You'll find the traditions of men. You'll find the world standards. You'll find religion. You'll find the do-gooders who try to do things in life. You'll find higher education. The seven things. I'll add the eighth one. And some of God's people, too. Some of God's people, when they get out of fellowship with God and they don't have the blessings of God in their life, misery loves company. So they'll look for somebody weak who's struggling and instead of building them up, they'll tear them down. Happens all the time. Devil never misses it. Verse 28 and 29. An ungodly witness scorneth judgment and the mouth of the wicked devoureth iniquity. You know, somebody that comes to the point in their life as a child of God who scorns reproof and judgment, somebody you need to stay away from. You always want to stay away from God's people that never take any reproof from anybody about anything. The guy that's always right and never wrong is somebody you don't want to hang out with. You just don't. Verse 29 says, judgments are prepared for the scorner and striped for the back of fools. That's why you want to stay away from him. Sometimes when God swings at him, he takes a wide swing, and if you're in the way, you'll get hit too. Now verse 28 and 29 is real simple. When any man or any woman continues in the instruction that causes to err, it will affect everything 
uh, in that person's attitude of what's going on in his own personal life, what's going on within his church or his ministry, or what's going on whatever God's doing in his life. And that's why Proverbs are so clear about these things. Some people just devour iniquity. They just drink it down. There's some people who only see the negative in everything that's out there. Their lives get filled up with their own negativity, and that's all they can see. They can't ever see the positive. They can't see what God's doing. They never see the lives that God's changing right around them. They never see the people that were saved. I remember a couple of years ago, we had a, we had a, a, a group of people, about every six or seven years, you know, you go through this. We had a group of people that were just, you know, out there in left field someplace. And I preached a message, and I asked them the message. I said, I said, let me ask you a question. You're so negative on things, and you think you've got the handle on things. I said, just name the last five people that were saved in our church. They couldn't do it. They didn't have a clue. In fact, one of the guys came up and he said, man, that was pretty powerful. I, I, I don't know who the five are. And I said, yeah, I know you don't. And I know why you don't. I mean, if you're into something and God's changing people's lives and people are getting saved and you're unaware of it, what is wrong with you? I mean, you can't see the individual victories in people's lives that, that changes them uh, forever. You can't see people come in who were once part of the world and now they got a Bible, they're sitting right around you today. Is that not positive? Amen. It's not, not something that's real. Why don't you see that? You see the process of God taking a young man or a young gal and transforming them into a new creature in Christ Jesus and giving them. I'll tell you, the joy of my life is on the last Saturday of the month. When I see our singles come in there, now we're up to about 30 or 40 of them. And those kids just give it. When they do their devotions, I mean to tell you they are on top of it. And you know what? I can't speak for you. I understand there's a lot of negativity and everything, but I want to tell you something. I just have a hard time seeing the negative when God's doing so much positive. Now, maybe that's just me. When I come out of there on Saturday morning, I'm about as high as a kite. I don't know how high a kite gets, but I'm high. I listen to those kids get up there and preach, and I listen to them laying out. I listen to every one of them, just the guys and the gals. I mean, they just, it's meticulous. If it's anything that is obvious to me is that somebody is paying attention. And they're, they're just taking everything and they're laying the Bible out. They, they don't make one mistake. They don't make one bad word. They, everything is absolutely down the line. And I'm sitting there listening to that. And you know what? It isn't just the joy of that. It isn't just the, the thrill of that. You know what the real joy is? That two years ago, a year ago, they were in the world. They were drinking on Saturday night. They were partying and doing all those things. They were doing all the things that the world does. And in a year or two years' time, God has taken them, transformed them, given them a Bible, given them a church, and now instead of drinking on Saturday night, they're sitting down there laying out and teaching and preaching the Word of God. Glory to God. And you're focused on what? I'll tell you what. Ah, just drives my heart. Right under our noses. And with all of that, we're focused on what? 
Told you I had a surprise for you. Changed my mind, I ain't telling you. If I've got anything firm in my mind about the ministry, and, I, and I'm screwed up in a lot of things. If I've got anything in my mind in my ministry, I clearly understand. And I learned it the hard way. I did. I don't mind telling you that. But at least I learned it. And I learned it by watching if other guys make the mistakes that they made. But if there's anything I come out of the ministry with of understanding it, is I understand my job and I understand God's job. And I do everything in my power not to get into God's business, and I totally want him in mine. But I don't want to get in his. There's things that he wants me to do that if I get shy, and there's things that he's going to do. And if I get sidetracked, keep on coming with those amens, sweetheart. You're really doing good. If I get sidetracked, I'm going to preach to you now. If I get sidetracked on doing his things, then I'm never going to do my things. That's right. That's right. You know, you black folks, I love you because when you go to the black church and preach, they all say, well, well. I like that. Let's have a well from everybody. One, two, three. There you go. First time I preached in a black church, they did that. I looked at the pastor and said, well, what? (laughs) He said, that's just what we do. I said, oh, okay. But you know what? One of the things that I understand, my job is to teach you the Bible. You know what most pastors do the first thing they get to church? They get into a building program. They They want to get a building. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll sink their people into a, a five, ten, fifteen million dollar building project and, and just, uh, and just, uh, and oh, that's where they'll go. And they're under the idea, they're under the idea that if you build a big, beautiful church, good people will come to it. Now, I learned a lesson about that years ago when my dog ran away. No, I did. I had just listened to a sermon by a preacher who said, if you want to build a big church, build a big, beautiful church, and the people will come. So I, my dog ran away, and I wanted him back. So I went and got there, got some friends of mine. We built the most elaborate doghouse you ever saw in your life. We had an upstairs and a downstairs, had running water, had food dispensers. All you had to do was hit with your paw, and it fed you. And I thought for sure if I built the best doghouse in the world, my dog would come back. He never came back. You know how I found my dog? I went up and down the street yelling for him. I went looking for him. I said, Buddy! Buddy, where are you? Come over here, you stupid mutt! Get over here! Where are you? Where are you at? And lo and behold, about an hour later, I had a flashlight. It was dark, and I saw these two glowing eyes. Well, that's the neighbor lady. No, there's the other one back here. I saw these two glowing eyes, and sure enough, tail between his big old brown lab, tail between his legs. Ears down. He knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. I mean, uh, and he come down there, and he, he laid down up on his belly, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I reached down and got him by the collar, you know. I wasn't mad. I was just glad to have him back. But my point is this. You don't build a church by building a big building. You build a church by going out and getting them. You go find them. You create scenarios that they, that they need, and you find them. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this attitude of one-handed ministry, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I I never worried about a church building, never have. When we started our church, we started in our kitchen. 
Chris Fender was with us then and just saw him the last couple of weeks, him and his lovely wife, and we got back together and talked for a while. We were laughing about some things and, uh, that happened, and I remember when we wanted to find a church place for us to meet because we were getting too big for the deal. He made one phone call, and it was down here at the pavilion, right down the road, who Larry owns that too. And uh, the lady was so excited that a church was going to come in there. We just went over to look at it. She already had the contract set up. So we signed a contract. And uh, we were down there. Now, down there, we only had it. We didn't have the whole thing. We only rented it for a couple of hours on Saturday, Sunday morning, and a couple of hours on, on Thursday night. We didn't have access to it. We were there for about three or four years. And I'll never forget it. It was on an anniversary Sunday. We were getting ready to go over to your mom and dad's for the thing over there. They were always so gracious to let us have our anniversary Sunday over there, Tara's mom and dad's. And, and I was walking out. Larry Lester, the guy who owns the place, he says, Bob, he says, he says, come and see me this week. And I said, okay, Larry, I will. And I, so I called him on Monday, went over, and he says, hey, look. He says, I own this other building up here, which is this one. And he says, downstairs is just sitting empty. And he said, there's about six, 7,000 square feet down there. And he says, you know what? You guys are doing really good down here. He said, I feel bad that you own it. I said, I'll tell you what. Go up and look at it. Uh, it's all, well, I'll have it all cleaned out for you. I won't charge you any more rent than you're paying down here. You can have it 24-7. Do whatever you want to do with it. And uh, it's yours. And I said, well, thank you, Larry. I said, I really appreciate it. When I looked at it, I, here we are today. I never was looking for a building. I was never asking for it. I mean, God just, I, I feel that if I do my job, God will do his. And I'm not going to get out of doing my job and start doing his, because he does a lot better than I do it anyhow. So I just let him do it. So here we are. We fixed the place up, got it, got it all spruced up. All you guys did it, and everybody did a great job. And, uh, you know, everybody just did a wonderful thing. and looked beautiful, and, and it's everything we could ever want. So a couple of weeks ago, Larry calls me in the afternoon. He says, uh, can I visit with you a little bit? I said, sure. I said, everything okay? He said, oh, yeah, everything's fine. I said, good. So I come up there, meet him upstairs, and he says, let me ask you a question. He says, this big hall over here upstairs where they have all the weddings and everything, he says, uh, they're going to get out of there, and they're not going to use it anymore. He says, do you want that? I said, nah. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. He said, you can have it. Wow. He says, it's all yours. He says, I appreciate what you guys do down here. He said, we'll work something out on it. He says, but he says, I want you to have it. He says, uh, uh, you guys do so much down here. He says, you know, I watch your church. He says, your church has done so much across this city. He says, uh, I, uh, I, he says, your people in your congregation are the friendliest, sweetest people I've ever met in my life. He says, he, says, he says, I'm a Catholic, but he says, I feel like I'm a part of your church, and I want to do something for your church to help you. And he says, it's all yours. It's all yours. And I, I, I thought to myself, here are guys who are putting their churches into magic debt, and God just keeps giving me things. He just says, here it is. You know what that does for me? Some of you may not like what goes on here, but God does. Amen. And that's good. Because I don't really care about you. Don't mean that in a bad way. I care about him. Now, here's what we're going to do with that. We're not going to change anything down here. We're going to stay down here. We're going to have surf and bring Bibles down here. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to develop that on Sunday morning. That's where all the prayer groups are going to go. You'll have your own table, your own space, your own two tables if you need them. 
You'll have all the space in the world to move out, and that'll be your space up there for your prayer groups, men and women. It's got everything you could ever want. And then we'll let God. We're going to have our banquets up there. We're going to have our, our camp thing up there. Uh, we'll have everything that we want to do. When we have the dinner for the hills for their family, we'll have that up there. It'll be something that you uh, that will always be there. And here's what I want you to do. When we're done here today, it's all, I want you to walk up and look at it. Most of you have never even seen it because they used to have the, the grate over there. The lady up there didn't want anybody coming in, so she put bars on it that you couldn't get in. We've set it free. We've set it free. Bars are gone. I want you to see it. But my point is this. God just keeps blessing us. I wasn't looking for that. I will never come to the place where I worry about where we're going to meet. You know why? That's God's business. You know what I worry about? When I step behind this pulpit, do I have what you need this morning? That's all I care about. The rest of it is, is okay. The rest of it God takes care of. And I'm telling you, I, I look at that. And, I, you know, God is moving through this place uh, and, 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 and changing lives. And, and, and you're focused on what? I don't know if you know it or not. Some of you probably do. God is developing the most biblical missions program that I've ever seen a church develop. Right in our nose. I got a letter today, a card I want to read to you here. This is from Stephen and Sandra Bird, who live in East Aurora, New York, who probably are on this morning. Dear Brother Bob, Love your stuff. Now, just so you think I just didn't throw that in there. Isn't that what it says right there, honey? There's people out there right now saying, oh, he just said that because he knows I don't like it. Right. She likes it. Isn't that what it says? It's the same handwriting, isn't it, huh? huh? Here, here. Taste the ink. Is it the same in both places? Yeah, it is. Just one more time. Love your stuff. <clears throat> Thank you much, so much for your faithful study of the word. Big capitals underline. You have opened up a whole new level. All my friends are hooked. Thank you again. P.S. If at all possible, could you send me, could I get a handful of those bookmarks I hear you mention all the time? Now, we got them all over the country and all over the world like that. And yes, she will get the bookmarks. We just sent two loads out to South Africa here a couple of weeks ago, sent some to England. We got a group in Holland. We got them all across the United States. We got Larry out there in, in Washington. People out there who don't have churches, and you know what? They can't find a church, so this is their church. We got our people up in Lincoln, and they can't find a church up there, this is their church. They're all over the place. And God's developing an outreach out of this church that has taken the King James Bible and the Word of God to places all over this world. And you're focused on what? God has allowed us to penetrate our culture and impact people's lives on every level. They have taken the instructions that we have given them and they've done something with it. While other people have taken the instructions from people who err and they get an attitude about it. God has provided for you an incredible place for you to learn the greatest book the world has ever seen. And I don't say that because of me. I say that because the book that stands 
in this church. Some of you have potential to rock this world for God. You really do. You really do. The happy times of the ministry is to see what a God is doing and what God is giving us. It really is. I never care what people think and I never care what people say. Hey, I understand. This church is not for everybody. I never claim. You never heard me say. I know there's a lot of pastors that, that think that their church is. I, I told you from day one, this church will not be. I'm looking for a certain cut of people. And I realize that some people can't keep up with where I'm at with it. And that's fine. It doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them the fact that this is not what they're looking for. I get it. I understand. But I'll tell you what, when God gives me what's left, you're incredible. That's the upside of the ministry. You know what the downside of it is? I see the potential in so many of you, and you're wasting it. You're wasting it. You're wasting it. I, I love when God brings old people back that were with me for years ago. Uh, who knew you know where I'm at and, and know what I'm all about. Who were forged with me through the tough times of everything that we've done. And you know, God given me a bunch of new folks and a bunch of great people and I love all those people too. But it's, it's always a blessing to me because I always look at it as where I'm at right now and where our church is at right now. And you ought to feel this way, guys. You really do. You ought to feel this way. God knew that where we were at, we just needed a little solid more rock of somebody who'd been down the road before. So we brought you back to me. To me, that's everything. That's everything. Meredith, I look at you. I knew Meredith when she was just a little baby. <laughs> and I'm so happy where you're at today with the Lord. God gave you William. Boy, I love you, buddy. I know you do. And now in your life, you're finally with the Word of God, and boy, it's changed everything about you. And you know what? I always said that out of your family, your dad and I would talk about this. We would talk about the fact that you were going to pass everybody else up and be out in the front lead, and boy, you sure did. And he's happy up in heaven today. And I'm happy down here today because I love you. And I'm just saying, things like this is what makes my world. It's what makes it all. I watch you young guys come in, all of you. <laughs> I watch all of you. I watch what God does. Watch how God puts you together. Watch you guys grow up. I remember when you were just, now you're taller than me. I don't appreciate that, but I understand it. <laughs> I love you. You got your gun with you? No. Nope. Oh, uh, well, next time you do, shoot him, would you please? <laughs> I, look, I, look at, I look at God bringing you back to us. You know what? I've known your family for 30, 40 years. Good people. I've known your mom. And, you know, for God to do that and bring you to me, that's the greatest blessing on the planet. It really is. It really is. I, I look at all of you. I look at everything that you've done. I've seen, I've seen some of you have to get your feet in the ground, like Sean and his wife back there. They, they had to find themselves. But, boy, they're tearing the Bible up now. I love it. You're posting on Facebook. You know what? I'm against Facebook. I hate Facebook. <laughs> but in your case, posting pictures of you and your wife doing the Bible study together, wow. That's a lot better than... Hill climbing on a motorcycle, isn't it? Or going to Worlds of Fun and being up on a big roller coaster. Man. <laughs> this is what it's about, kids. This is the victories. This is what it's about. I look at the Hensleys back there. They were with me a long time ago. Had to get the book, didn't you, buddy? Just had to get back in that book, didn't you, buddy? Huh? You did. Yeah, amen. You did. Now look at you go. And your wife, too. And your boys. 
And just think, you can retire. They're going to be NBA ballplayers. You won't have to worry about a thing the rest of your life. See, that's the upside. I look at those kids up in Lincoln. Can't wait for them to get down here. And somebody says, well, you know what? What about taking the kids out of Lincoln? What are they going to do? You know what's going to happen? That's what God does. Somebody up in Lincoln needs to stand up and take the place. That's how it works. You think when I die that you're just going to play tapes of me every week after I'm gone? <laughs> Somebody has to step up, take the job. That's what it's all about. And that's the plus side. That's the beauty of it all. But here's the downside. Some of you have so much potential. And I know, I, I get it. I am the most patient guy on the planet waiting for people to come around. I am. I, 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 hey, I get it. I understand. It took me 19 years to figure the thing out. I get it. I get it. But I want to tell you something. It's a shame. It's a shame that some of you are wasting the instructions of your father. It's a shame that you have so much potential. You could do so much for the Lord. Your personality is just incredible. Your, your, your intellect is, is right where it needs to be. You're a class act in all areas of your life. You could be such a, a tool for the Lord. You could do so much for Him. But you'll never do it just one-handedly. Got to get in with both hands. You got to get all the things, the people, the things out of your life that's going to cause you to err. You got to quit focusing on the negative things. There's always negative things to focus on. Well, if I went through my life and just focused on negative things, I wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. There's so much negativity that I got to deal with all day long. I just focus on that. I never do. You know why? Because I see what God is doing. What a waste. Now, this is why people don't like the book of Proverbs. Just too plain, isn't it? Leaves no rock to hide under, and I say that in reference to Revelation 6, 16. But I love it. I love it because it keeps me between the white lines of life. I love it because it hits me as much as it does you. See, some of you don't like it because you've got to listen to it. Shoot, I got to put it together five days before you ever hear it. I got to look at it a lot longer than you do. And I don't like it either sometimes. But he doesn't love with a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet, aren't they? I love it. It keeps me right where I need to be, and it clobbers me when I need it, which is about every 20, 30 seconds. It's the mind of God. Last Thursday night, Somebody asked a question, I think it was Charles over here, about the books of the Bible, how they line up and show the, how they line up and show the premillennial return of Christ. Tremendous insight into each book and what it contains. And I showed you how that, I told you how that uh, the Jews go back two times, once in 606 B.C. and then after that, then again, uh, they go out in Titus, AD, Titus 70 A.D. and then they come back in 1948. And I showed you how that the books show you that. Second Chronicle chapter 36 is when they go in, 606 B.C. Book of Ezra is when they go back, and they, they go back like they did in the 1880s, 1900. Nehemiah is where they rebuild like they did in 1948. Esther is a picture of the latest in church period where, uh, like we're going through right now today. Then we went into the book of Job, and I showed you how the book of Job is uh, 
picture of the tribulation period. Then I took you into Psalms, and I showed you how Psalms is the millennial reign of Christ. Then I took you to Proverbs, and I showed you how the Proverbs represents eternity for us. Proverbs is the book that shows us the eternal mind of God, where everything that is God's mind is laid out, and that's what eternity will be. See, there's no more preaching of the Bible in eternity, nor in the millennium. There's no more Bible studies. There's no more any of that kind of stuff. That's for now, because we have the mind of God in the book, and that's how you got to get it. But when the Lord comes back, we get into eternity, that mind is opened up to everybody. And right now, God wants to open up that mind in a book to you. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Like Samuel, God wants to establish you in three things in your life. He wants to establish you in the Word of God. He wants to establish you in a relationship with Him. He wants to establish you in a ministry through the body of Christ, through this New Testament local church that He has put you in. He could have put you anywhere. If you think it's an accident that you're here this morning, you don't know very much about God. And that's what blows my mind. If you believe that, why do you got an attitude about things? If you really believe that God is, is in this and God has put you where he wants you to be, what is your deal? The deal is you're one-handed. And you're like a person who's right-handed and you can't do very much with your left, so you hide your right hand and just give God your left hand, which isn't very good to start with. One-handed paper hanger. How many of you said it? What do you feel? I feel like a one-handed paper, one-armed paper hanger, one-armed Christianity. Just enough to put a little in, but never do much with it. You know, the devil, the devil doesn't need to take all three of those away from you to have you fall. He only has to take one because they're all connected. And he takes one away, the other two will collapse on itself. In life, it's two simple concepts. You'll either take the instruction of your father that will establish you through the church that God puts you in, or you'll take the instruction of a scorner that causes you to err. It'll be one or the other. The Proverbs chapter 19 has been a great chapter. Well, we'll hold up there. Now, here's what we want to do. We're going to pray and we'll be dismissed here. Um, take time to shine up back there for food for uh, if you're going to help us with Rochelle's funeral when we'll let you know when that is. Danny is going to have the draft, so you're going to get a chance to go out and get something to eat. But I would like for you uh, to, to go upstairs and just look at what God gave us. Let's look at it. Let's just savor the blessings of God that God has poured out on us. And uh, I was talking to Bob Gregg about it. I told him about it last week, and we were up there laughing and talking about it and I said, I said to him, you know what, it only goes to prove me that somebody's doing what's right around here. Not necessarily me, but somebody is and God blessing us on top of it. And it's you. It's you. It's every one of you who have got both hands in the ministry and you're doing the work of the Lord. And God says, you know what, this is the Laodicean church age. I can't get anybody to believe my Bible. Here's a bunch of idiots down here who are just simple enough, to, stupid enough to believe what I said. I've got to take care of them. All my life I heard the old saying that God takes care of the fools and drunkards. And none of us drink. Well, most of us don't. <laughs> but we're just fools for Christ, aren't we, huh? Amen. I'm just glad I'm dumb enough to believe the book that God gave me. 
I'm just dumb enough that I believe that whatever it is, you know, it's good enough for all of us. And my job is to establish you. My job is to take every one of you who wants to be established and help you get to where God wants you to be. We do the work of the ministry together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and I love you so much. And I thank you, Father, for all the good things that you do for us, and thank you for this church. I thank you, Father, for, uh, Lord, uh, I, I think of how that 20-some years, or 13, 14 years ago, how it was in my heart that I dreamed of this very moment with these very people here. And yet, all that time when it was in my heart, a lot longer than that, it was in your heart. And I'm glad that as many issues that I have, and as stupid as I am, I'm glad that your heart and my heart could get together on at least this church. And I thank you for it. Help me to always be a good pastor to them. Help me to always teach them the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. Help me to love them when maybe they don't love me. Help me to care for them when maybe they don't care for the things that we do here. Never let me get to the place where I'm like them. Always keep me in a place where I can be like you. And help us all to keep both hands in the work. Never let us just get one-handed in the ministry. Let us look at it as something that is so vital and so crucial. Let us bring our kids into it. Let us, through all the examples that we learned today with Samuel and Samson, let us understand that the two things are going to mess us up are the places we go and the people we hang out with. And we can pretend all we want that that's not true, but it, it's so true. And I thank you again for the people here, their love for you, their love for me, their love for this church, and their love, Father, that how that they have, they have gotten the heart beat of what we're doing. And they want to take this thing all the way to the end until the Lord comes back. Thank you, Father. Give us a good day down at Restart. Give us a good day in all that we do. We pray for the hills. We pray, Father, that we'll be sensitive to that and that we'll do a good job. And uh, Lord, I pray that, uh, that when I have to stand and preach and the things that I have to say and the things I have to talk about, that it'll be received, Father, with the spirit by which it was given. And Lord, we'll just thank you now and praise you for all you do. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. I'll meet you upstairs here in just a momento. That's Spanish, by the way, for in a minute. <laughs>